All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 12 of the KISS FAQ podcast. Uh, Joining me today are bag boy Alex, Andrew, and I... I'm totally blanking on your username. It's uh, a live cat man. Yeah, there we go. Thanks. And uh, St. Louis Kiss, Lonnie. What's up? Today's topic, um, we are going to jump into talking about some of the 80s albums, the Unmasked era. And I guess we're all on the slightly younger side of fandom. So, at least for me, this was my era of the band that I got into. So... For me, this kind of means more than Destroyer. Oh, there I am. I'm illuminated now. But Lonnie, you're going to run point on this episode. So take us away. All right. So as Julian said, the topic today is 80s Kiss. And I suggested the topic because it's something that's very important to me. It's when I got into the band. Um, It's an era of the band that I was always excited about. And a part of me was disappointed. Part of me was excited, well, I'll say most of me was excited when the reunion tour happened, but a part of me was also disappointed when the reunion tour happened because that era of the band, as I knew it, was no longer going to exist. And I knew when they put the makeup back on that there would be no going back to an unmasked version of the band. That it, it worked one time, it would not work again to take the makeup off. So the topic I suggested today was, was 80s Kiss. What worked for the band? And what didn't work for the band, not only from a musical standpoint, but from a visual standpoint as well. What was working and what didn't work. I mean, we've, we've all seen the pictures of the bands and videos of the band um, during the 80s with the flamboyant outfits that they were wearing to try to keep up with what was popular at the time, to try to be Bon Jovi or try to be like Poison or whoever was at the top of the charts at the time. And... Something I brought up too with this topic is would Kiss have been or would Kiss have had more success had they not been trend chasers in that period? Had they been more like a metal band or a hard rock band, not chasing the hair metal scene like a like an Iron Maiden or like a Metallica just just coming out in black and just playing their music and not trying to chase the trends um because and i'll get into this when we get into later into the episode but i think metallica and their success in 91 with black really changed the direction of the band from what we saw come with revenge yeah destroyed it just the black album destroyed metallica (laughs) that's a topic for another another (laughs) podcast (laughs) all right so i think i think what what a lot of people lose sight of is when they when they talk about '80s Kiss, they're always like, "Well, Kiss just should have been uh, a rock and roll band. They shouldn't have, you know, chased trends." But what a lot of people don't understand is, is I mean, I didn't live through this. I mean, I only know about it through reading magazines and, and fans and whatever have you. These dinosaur bands, they weren't popular. Even Led Zeppelin was at an all-time low in the '80s. You had all these new bands coming out, and this was like really. And not a resurgence, but I guess like a surgence of metal. You had all these metal bands coming out, and metal was huge. So you had this whole other genre of music. Then you had all the sub-genres going along with it. So 
Dinosaur Rock, which Kiss, Led Zeppelin, The Who, The Rolling Stones, it just wasn't anybody's cup of tea back then. People got back into a lot of those dinosaur rock bands in the late 90s and the early 2000s just because there was so much less music coming out. Um, you know, you have all these other bands that everything everything sounds like something that came before. You have all these artists that are sampling music. You have all these pop stars that are doing this and doing that. There's not really a whole lot of new stuff coming out. You know, when Metallica first came out, no one was doing metal like that. When, um, you know, grunge came out, no one was doing music like that. So you have these different um, genres and subgenres of music that came out in the 80s and the 90s that isn't happening today. That's why today dinosaur bands are so huge because you have the people that not only remember when the bands were, you know, initiated, but you have their kids and you have such a young generation going, well, I don't really like what's going on now. I like what's going on then because they have so much to choose from. You didn't have that much to choose from in the 80s. Yeah, and 80, we're, we're going to be talking about 1983. And let's look at 83 just as an example. You've got the emergence of the L.A. rock scene. That's really, you've got Rat. You've got uh, Motley Crue, obviously. You've got Wasp coming out of, well, maybe not so much Wasp, but, you know, uh, Rat and uh, and Motley Crue were going to be some of the kings of the 1980s in terms of their image, in terms of their music. But you've got bands, Aerosmith, but it's Nadir. It's way down there. It's Lost Perry, it's Lost Whitford, it's put out Rock in a Hard Place, which, while it has some good moments, it's not a great Aerosmith album. Um, 83, they're kind of on their last legs. They're teetering around touring. Rush, Another big 70s band. I'm going to say 82, 83 is not exactly their highest point either. They've come down from the 2112 era, permanent waves. Uh, they've gone into the more synth-based phase. So they're adjusting, and they're, you know, they were never a major act anyway after moving pictures. So th those are, uh, I see, three big contemporaries. Ted Nugent, come on, he's on the down as well for that big 70s kind of... Uh, Peter. Alice Cooper. Yeah, so Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper. I mean, what was he doing? Wasn't he Special Forces early eighties? So you Super know, catch his skin stuff like that, and flush the fashion. Stuff. So you know, all of these big nineteen seventies acts have kind of fallen off the edge of the world, and here's Kiss taking off the makeup, reinventing themselves, and look it up, Alex. I just um, took over from you, Lonnie. I'm sorry. I, I can I see that. I <laughs> <laughs> mean, yeah, I've got to agree. Um, you had almost this, like, smorgasbord of, of new bands coming out in the 80s. And then, you know, you know, Kiss, obviously, they took the makeup off. You got Lick It Up. And I guess we're still up there. I think it's a great album. I don't know. I know, you know, uh, the Sphinx listens to this. I don't know if any Vincent say Kiss or not. But, uh, you know, he, he did do a great album with Lick It Up. Not as good as Creature, uh, but a good album. But what do you think in terms of their image? You know, I'm, you know in, in looking back at these things, they come out on stage, they're wearing jeans and ripped T-shirts. I, I tell you, the Lick It Up look wasn't as bad as, you know, when we get uh, we'll get there to 1985 with the Asylum look. And even the Animal Life look was a little uh, kind of, I guess, silly. The Lick It Up look wasn't as bad, at least for the look. I mean, it just kind of came out like the... The ripped jeans and stuff, um, and and Paul with the tank tops and and so forth, um, you know. So I, I think it was I think it was exciting at the time because it was. I mean, you can see Paul if you look at the beginning of the creature store with his outfits, and even at the end he had the ripped t-shirt going on. So I think there was the excitement, um, even just with the audience and, and the fans who did attend those shows with the Look It Up era. 
the um, you know the excitement, the the newness. I guess uh, we get that that's the word. The sound of Doctor Zeus there, but the newness that was going on with the image, um, I think, played a huge factor with it. And, and I think, um, like Paul always said, that you know people listen with their eyes, not with their ears, kind of a thing. I think the taking off the makeup allowed um, allowed people to see the musical aspect that was Kiss. Well, I, I think in 83, they looked as real as they thought they, they, they weren't really there in, in costumes, per se, like they were, as we get into later. Um, I think they were trying to be as real as they could, or as real as, as they knew how to be, for taking off the makeup. And, like you said, Alex, it, it was the newness and the excitement of, oh, I'm going to get to see the see Kiss without the makeup, what's that going to be like? And they produced a... You know, I'm, it's not my favorite record from the '80s, but I, they produced a a heavier record, um, like a sister album to Creatures, and they they were they were learning how how to be kissed without the makeup. Um, Andrew, what do you think about when they first took off the makeup and was looking? Well, up? remember, uh, I'm a little bit younger. I'm probably the youngest out of everybody here, I think. But uh, I'm, I'm not. 25. I'm 25. Oh, you're 25. All right, so yeah. you got me by five years. Okay, so. I didn't experience this in real time. I went back. And even when I first discovered Kiss, I didn't even know they took off the makeup. But but anyway, looking back and how I discovered it, Lick It Up is the last album of the 80s I could listen to from start to finish and go, that's a really good album. And, you know, I, you have all these fans and even fans here, even people here as we're talking, saying that there was this whole resurgence of Kiss when Lick It Up came through. It wasn't a resurgence. I mean, you had Kiss in 1979 playing two nights at Madison Square Garden and they come back and look it up to her and they're playing um, uh, what's what's the name of the, the hall they played in New York City Radio, uh, Radio City, City Radio yeah. City Music Hall there's yeah. no resurgence of Kiss and I, yeah I mean I want to I almost want to bet that probably 30% of the people that went to see Kiss at that time didn't know they had makeup on two years prior or a year prior or six months prior. They just heard Lick It Up and they go, oh, that's a cool song. I'll go see them in concert. Because remember, there was no internet. There's barely any magazines. Kiss couldn't get killed in the press at this time. Or maybe they so, were going to see Accept, you know. Okay, yeah, maybe they were going to see Accept. <laughs> um, but uh, on the whole other end of that, I think Lick It Up is a great album. I think finally Kiss decided to be what they were, which was a harder band. And, I mean, you listen back to some of the earlier albums, like, you know, Rock and Roll Over, Dress to Kill. That's not really a heavy band. That's a rock and roll band. But you have this new writing influence, you know, Vinnie Vincent, and you have Eric Carr playing a lot harder than Peter Chris ever played. So you had Kiss pretty much basically how they were. Um, and what I mean by that is I don't believe Kiss was ever a disco band or, or a pop band or The Elder or anything like that. So you had a good snapshot of Kiss, how they were. It's a great album. I think Lick It Up as a whole worked the best out of all the 80s stuff. But I agree. I think I think Lick It Up was them trying to be as real as they could. And it's them being kissed to the best that they could and not being, they weren't really chasing a trend yet with Lick It Up. Yeah, there's Paul already playing the, the leopard skin guitar and Lick It Up tour. It's just 
goofy looking, but um, I think they were trying to be You say that's goofy looking, but like a year prior, he's like shaking his ass, taking off a peacock top. Is, he's is wearing that... a sports bra on stage at the same yeah. time. Yeah, so where do, where do you where do, where do you draw the line? Because you people, they're, they're losing their minds about saying, oh, kiss. I mean, let's go back to when they did the uh, the Samurai Sun with uh, Momokuro Z. People say, oh, Kiss is a silly band. I'm like, when have they not been a silly band? You know, like, going back to the 70s, okay, they're, they're in a comic book. That's pretty silly. It's cool, but it's pretty silly. And you got well, Paul you know, dancing around, taking off a jacket. That's pretty silly for a man to do that. And you got an out playing with leopard guitar. So, you know what? It's just, it's par for the course. I guess we should be, I guess we should have maybe focused too much with Paul with his clothing. I mean, <laughs> there was even a thing on Twitter today about that. Paul made a statement about some model today and, Somebody threw the asylum picture at him. So again, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Paulo, the, the, the cool thing is he didn't own up to the picture. He did go, you know, hey, um, I never said the road in the streets though. So um, yeah, that, that, I, that I, like, Paul oh. probably totally knows. I mean, if he acted like he did on stage on the street, he'd be straight into the end of a, a van. <laughs> <laughs> but those guitar, I mean, if you, you're looking at the instruments and how all of a sudden they start using, you know, tiger stripes, those are all on the Creatures tour as well. Don't forget. You know, so that had started before the makeup came off. Tail end of the Creature Store, he's wearing uh, Sao Paulo. He was wearing a local football jersey on stage, uh, which he'd never done anything like that. Um, obviously, he hadn't been to uh, South America before where football is football. Um, but, I mean, he'd started wearing the Creature's Tour shirt, so maybe the budget was that tight, you know, on that leg of the tour. That Yeah, he'd started making that transition on the previous tour. So when he comes out on stage... Um, I mean, obviously, they look nothing like they did on the album cover. Um, you know, Vinny in particular um, was just, you know, kind of strange. But Gene as well, if you look at the album cover and then you look at how he looks on stage, he is the most uncomfortable transformation of any of them from, uh, I, everyone knows that really, from makeup to uh, plain face. Gene is the most difficult one to make any transition and he looks uncomfortable but he does not look as bad in the lick it up era as he does later <laughs> did anybody else when uh i remember when i first saw um a picture of the lick it up sleeve and i'm, I'm young at the time i doesn't even register with me i'm not a, i'm not a fan as i am today I, I didn't even know who the other two guys were on the cover so can you imagine if you're a casual fan and you're tuning into the unmasking on MTV and they're like Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, you're like, who the fuck are those two other guys? I mean, granted, Eric Carr got a lot more pomp and circumstance than Vinnie Vincent ever did, but you had them taking off the makeup and it's these two guys that's like, who cares? No one cares about them. Yeah, I mean, you got to feel sorry for Vinnie. Number one, they always, you know, he, he was a side figure for creatures, really, you know, not on the album cover, barely on the credits. Um, and then they deny his state of Connecticut and try and pretend that they're all from New York. And then come lick it up. It's like he's written all the songs on the album, basically. And he's still still a bit of a tangential figure. And had you, yeah, not, but seen, had you not seen the Creatures tour, had you not gone to the Creatures tour, you probably wouldn't have even known that Vinnie Vincent was in the band even at the time. Because Ace Frehley's faces on the cover of the album there is no internet you might not even be aware that vinnie vincent is a member of kiss at the time no you're you're, you're right because i you know it's been well documented that a lot of people went to the creatures tour and they thought ace just had changed his makeup they didn't know 
But I, I'm I'm willing to bet that even though Vinny brought this great, I don't want to say resurgence, but he injected this new energy into the band. Yeah. But I'm almost willing to bet that yes, he wrote these three songs. But how much of a fucking pain in the ass was he before, after, and during that songwriting session? I mean, something had to happen where all the members of Kiss wanted to strangle him. Yeah, so, and, I, it, and and if you think about it, he was probably just like that one guitarist who showed up at a freaking audition in 1972 and plugged in and started noodling uh, while waiting for his turn. So uh, is there that much of a difference behaviorally between Vinny and Ace? From the sounds of both of them, they were righteous pains in the butt to work with. So, you know, they've got that arti- that artistic mental challenge going. Moving on, Kiss goes back to the studio and cuts a new album in 84 called Animalized with a new guitarist. Wait, 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 wait. Are we even done with Lick It Up yet? Are we done with Lick It Up? No, we're not. You're not done with Lick It Up, Julian. Tour. And on, and on the eighth day, God made rock and roll. Done. No, I'm just kidding. No, um... They really start a trend with Lick It Up of um, throwing half the album out live on tour. So that was vastly different than Dynasty. How many songs did they do off that album on tour? What, two, three, 2,000 Man, and I Was Made. So before that, Love Gun, well, we still don't really know about Almost Human. We know Love Gun, Shock Me, um, Hooligan. Correct. I stole your love. I stole your love. So, 15, 16. you know, they're back to that in 1983. I mean, they go on tour. They're doing "Give Me More." They're doing "Lick It Up." They're doing "Exciter." Um, young and wasted. Young and wasted. Young and wasted. Oh, and yeah, give that, me less. That, give me less. That 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 <laughs> goes less. that goes into the set in early '84. So midway through the tour, "Exciter" I think gets dropped, replaced with uh, the next single. Gimme More becomes Vinny's guitar solo um, vehicle, shall we say. And after the number of bootlegs I've listened to in the last couple of days from this tour, I am so sick to death of listening to Vinny's freaking guitar solo on that tour. She, she called it the high point of the tour. The high point of the show, because that's when everybody left to go out and get high because they were tired of listening. So I guess what I'm getting at, was it was it good practice for them to totally revamp the set, um, they murdered the set by putting all of this balance on creatures and lick it up, and that kind of remains to this day. If you look at War Machine, I Love It Loud, Lick It Up, you know, being well, so they central. Had creatures tonight, they're playing Creatures tonight. Yeah. Well, they had to at this point because remember they were trying to distance themselves from that '70s cartoony makeup band. So whereas, yeah, whereas. You know, they were singing about, hey, Christine 16 and, you know, Shock Me and, uh, you know, all those ones. They wanted to be a metal band. And, you know, what? if you're playing to a metal audience and you're having opening bands like Accept and even on the Creatures of the Night Tour, the previous three had Motley Crue, you want, to, you want your material to stack up to their material. And also, not for nothing, you want the material that you're playing live to kind of be a good representation as to what's going on, I guess, in music. So they really had to put the focus on those heavier Kiss songs. They weren't going to come out and they weren't going to play, you know, Love Her All I Can, or they weren't going to be singing about, um, you know, Mainline. They weren't going to do any of that stuff. They had to be a harder band. So I actually and, had a, I had a thought right then. The uh, 
the opening acts on this tour, um, and I don't have a full list in front of me. My Kiss Alive Forever is on the floor across the room. Um, Vandenberg. Now, that's pretty kind of AOR rock to me. Um, what a great band. Helix, who I loved. Not uh, were <laughs> were kind of a the Canadian attempt at Motley Crue, from what I thought. Give me an R. Give me an O. Um, Rocky. What about, what about Riot? Riot weren't that heavy. You know, of, of those opening acts, Only Except really jumps out yeah. at me as being a kind of a hardcore um, grind metal. I mean, I don't know what you want to kind of describe them as, but they're totally different than any of the other bands on that uh, that tour. But, you know, they only come in at the tail end. So they, they kind of, they're not partnering up with any really heavy-hitting um, opening acts. I mean, Tail End of Creatures, you had plasmatics who were publicly vilified you've got motley crew who are on the rise and then on this tour you kind of have i guess cheap acts yeah they had to have cheap acts they were trying to they were trying to pinch any penny that they could no i think you had to have cheap acts even even gray white opened a few shows on there and gray white was not by any means gaining the pop at their height at that point at all um so, are we done with Lick It Up? Should we move on? Any more thoughts on Lick It Up? Give me less. <laughs> so we go on the animal list. And well, I want to say real quick, if there's anybody who's got a first shot Lick It Up, get it out there. Come on. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. I don't like it. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Just, just throwing it out there. Throwing so out we there. move in the animal eyes. And we get a new guitarist, Mark St. John, on the album, which is it because following a trend with hotshot lead guitarist Eddie Van Halen type of playing with their new lead player. And they start to look a little bit different than they did in the Lick It Up tour. Gene especially starts to look a bit ridiculous. He's got the wig for the first time. got the wig. Now, is that, is that the same well, wig? For the fr- for the is that the same wig that, that, that Mark wore on the cover and Vinny wore in the Lick It Up cars? It's, it looks like the same wig. They just Well, they were hurting for money at the time, Andrew, so we had to share wigs, too. It's probably the same wig. <laughs> Ramsey, not you push my wig. So let's talk, to, let's talk about Mark St. John quickly. I mean, you know, rest in peace, Mark, but he's a, he's a noodler. He comes from that you know, guitar act slinger mentality, Californian mentality of the 80s. So he's a shredder um, doing the same sorts of stuff. I I mean, I can't even think of some of the guys who I I compare him to um, because I don't want to be disrespectful to guys like George Lynch, um, you know. Well, do you find it interesting that they had a guitar, they had a shredder and a songwriter in Vinnie Vincent and then when Mark St. John comes to the fold, he's only a shredder. He's not really a songwriter. Is that on purpose? Definitely. With, without a, a doubt, it was it was on purpose. It was calculated. With the amount of publishing that got tied up in Lick It Up with Vinny. I mean, I, I think most of those songs were came from Vinny with Gene and Paul coming in later. And, well, change this word here. Oh, what about this for, you know, a verse? I really think, and I, won't, I don't know what the splits are or originally were before Vinny lost them, or I don't know if he did lose those ones. Um, you know, 
it was def- it was definitely a financial concern, and Mark was given no latitude. You, there's a great interview with him up on the Asylum Kiss Asylum uh, from years ago that really details what a miserable experience that he wasn't allowed to do anything. But if you listen to some of his earlier music, I don't know if you'd really want him to. I mean, he's all over the place musically, jazz. You know, I I think he was just a, a shredder by necessity rather than where he was coming from a musical uh, perspective. I think he was just a working musician that was doing whatever he could to make ends meet. There are so many guys that are guilty of that. He was just playing whatever he could to make a paycheck. And you know what? More power to him for doing that. Yeah, and he came from, I think, uh, Grover Jackson is who recommended him to Paul. You know, Paul said, I want a shredder. So that that's what the bands. I think in 1984, all of a sudden, we get Kiss is jumping more on the bandwagon. They are now following trends more than they they weren't following any trend with Lick It Up because they were playing their Ace card unmasked. Here we are, we're wearing jeans and t-shirts. Now they've got to start having an image. Now they start ha- having to do something that all the other bands are doing and fit into some narrow realm. So it feels much less honest and more calculated, the whole Animalize album. What I think is kind of, I think is interesting and kind of funny to mention now, I guess more than ever since we're talking about Animalize, MTV had solidified itself as a force to be reckoned with by the time Animalize came out. You had Lick It Up that was on there, and then you also had All Hell's Breaking Loose, which was on there too. So you almost, before Animalize was completed, or maybe while they were doing Animalize, they probably already had to think of, okay, what's going to be the next video, and what are we going to do in the next video? And I think it's funny because Kiss was this visual band, and now they have a visual medium, and they're not a visual band anymore. They're just a band. They really are. Not to discount the songs that came out, because Heaven's on Fire is still a great song. I bet you if Paul could sing it, they would still be doing it today. But um, you had this, you not only had to make a great song, but you also had to make a, a great video, which unfortunately I don't think Kiss really ever did. No. Uh, Heaven's on, Animalize was the first album that I ever had on my own. My older brother had Creatures and Destroyer and when Analyze came out, I was, I guess I was five years old, and I, I knew, I don't know, somehow I knew it was coming out, I don't, I don't know, but I got it for Christmas that year, and Analyze was always, it's like one of those special albums to me, and I had it on cassette, and I just played it, played it, and played it, and, you know, it's... It's a different sounding album with 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 Mark's guitars, and you can definitely see the the, the trend chasing that's going on at the t- at, at the time. And you know they were still playing the, the non makeup card very heavily, though, with like the Heavens on Fire video that they're hiding their faces, even like the first part of it, similar to the Lick It Up video. Um, but we all know Mark St. John plays what two two and a half shows on the. On the tour. Two, yeah, two and a half. Yeah, two and a half. He did he did a half show in Baltimore, Maryland, which you can find on the web, and then he did two shows in New York, uh, the 27th, 28th, and 29th of November of 84. Yes, and thank you very much, because I lived in freaking Binghamton in 1984. <laughs> but I wasn't a KISS, I wasn't a KISS fan yet. So... You can talk about opening acts on that tour. They really were. Cha- they were this is when they really started chasing more of an '80s trend of what was popular. 
who did they take out on that tour? They, they Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi, Crocus, Queens, right? Wow. Sorry, sorry. I just, I just pick up on these things. You are a dick. <laughs> <laughs> so at least one of those opening bands is good, and uh, I think it. Was it at the end of this tour that they had Blue Oyster Cult on, at one show? Isn't this the, or is that the next tour that Black and Blue open? Is that Asylum? That's Black Asylum. Asylum? Yeah, we'll get into that one in a few minutes. So, uh, once again, they start the tour in Europe. They started the Lick It Up tour in Europe. Um, and they throw a hell of a lot of songs from the album out live. And I'm just going to try and pull up a set list here quickly. So first first night of the show, you get I've got enough I've had enough into the fire, burn bitch burn under the gun, get all you can take, heavens on fire, you know that that again they're they're really shifting the band from the seventies into the eighties where they've dropped down to how many seventy songs Detroit, Colgin, Strutter, um, Love Gun, rock and roll all night. I mean you're basically down to four core songs by that point and the rest is all off the previous uh, the three current albums so what an incredible time to see the band and there's some freaking great bootlegs from this uh from this tour radio shows not just the mtv unplugged but i think the one thing that really strikes me about this era apart from gene and mark being so um Visually contrasting to Eric and Paul, I mean, they don't look right in the band. They they just do not look comfortable figures um, as rock bands. Yeah, I, I don't think Mark Fed does that great picture where you see Mark live with the band. And he's got a guitar super high up and he's like singing to the mic. And so he just didn't, he is, didn't, he didn't look comfortable even on stage. Mark, is that a guitar or a chin rest? I don't know what it is. <laughs> But the thing that really starts to happen, I, I notice it more on the 84 recordings than the Lick It Up ones, is the tempo really starts increasing um, to the point where they sound like the chipmunks at times. And that's just not the tapes out of sync. So the, the shows get shorter. They're down to, I think, about 95 minutes. They're faster. Um, and it doesn't sound right. Detroit Rock City sounds absolutely atrocious on MTV's um well animalize live so even even the 70s songs that they kept in the set list they're giving them more of an 80s type or a modern type feel for what was modern at the time and just really just really in my opinion really being trend chasers and because like we were talking about i think uh earlier is that those dinosaur bands were really were really hurting at the time, you know. And Kiss was treading water. They had a new gimmick about themselves with the non makeup, and they were playing that as much as they could. And we're gonna even even what we're gonna give you from our past that we're trying to distance ourselves from as much as we can. We're gonna give it an '80s type of feel to prove that we are, I guess, hip and competitive to what's out there at the time. You know, we're we're not this. We're not an old band. We're we're a current band, and this is who we are. We're and they and they were were trying their best to be as proud of what they were in that moment. But the okay. attempt the attempt to be hip really kind of backfires 
I and maybe it's looking back at your 14 year old self for me um, to 1984 when you listen to the uh, the animalize bootlegs and the Michael Jackson speech I just cringe now at Paul <laughs> I cringe at his love gun story his oh, preamble yeah, um, <laughs> I'm sure my 14 year old self is kicking me in the shins right now saying what that's what awesome man but it's just so cringeworthy, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it makes him cringe now. But the Michael Jackson thing in particular is really bothersome when you think of where that went later. But how would anyone have known? No, but I think I think, uh, I think that was like kids trying to become cool. Like that was, uh, you know, I was I remember picking up the Animal Lives Live uncensored. Obviously, it's an unofficial release, but it was that Best Buy. And I was actually like the first like full kids conference that I was able to watch like a live performance minus the unplugged. And um, I just remember being, I was I, I was amazed at like how much swearing that Paul would do in between the songs. And um, and obviously you know getting older, been able to go back and listen to other other tours and stuff. You know, I mean there was like not even swearing even when Kiss started out really with the, the seventy five, not including. Uh, Peter <laughs> at the like the other earlier shows, but um, you know you saw that you saw the complete change though, and and I thought like that was kind of you know I don't know if it was like kids trying to keep up with the times you know you had your 1979 maybe the you know eight nine year old kids and you, you know at five years to a nine year old like you said Julian 14 years old now so now he's you know he's high school he's probably having his first beer ever and you know and now we got to have the airport every other following and stuff. And that becomes noted in more and more of the reviews. If you if you trawl through, I think it's some of the, the PDFs I put up every now and then of the tours with reviews from shows, a lot of them comment more on Paul's potty mouth in this era than they do the show. Or they also criticize the opening acts as you get into 84, 85. So. Wasn't um, years prior when... I don't know if it was Sammy Hagar solo. It probably wasn't Sammy Hagar solo. It might have been Sammy Hagar with mantras. But wasn't isn't there a story somewhere that Sammy Hagar was asked to leave the tour because he's using profane language as an opening act? And then here you are a couple of years later, Paul is just motherfucking a storm. Yeah, um, no. that that no, was that, I think that was seventy seven. Was that 77? early seventy seven tail end of the rock and roll over tour? So yeah, um, he was asked off the tour. Because it wasn't family friendly, and all of a sudden, well, I guess he finally got rid of the kids, or the kids grew grew up into fourteen year olds by that point. So, you know, maybe with the sort of stuff other bands were doing on stage that he was going to see, and he saw the effing and blinding, he he felt he had to kind of butch it up a bit. But I I don't think it comes off well. It it does never struck me as being honest. It never struck me as being Paul Stanley, um, kind of just the way he acts and behaves, it, it just seemed a complete contrast to his kind of personality that comes across, at least to the public. Yeah. And, and maybe his, maybe, you know, it's, it's them in the eighties, him just trying to be like, like a bad boy type of image, like up there cursing and not caring what anybody, anybody thinks in between songs. And, you know, you had, I agree. We're not, you know, we're not it's only, we're only talking about 1984 right there, but you know, you get in, to later years with like Guns N' Roses and you know bands who really didn't give a shit what people thought about them and you know, cursing on stage and whatever in between songs. So, um, you know, I and 
obviously on that tour we didn't talk about it too, but Bruce Kulik makes his first appearance with the band after Mark St. John isn't able to continue. And you want to talk about, you, know, you talk about uh, the way Mark looked playing, but Bruce really looked out of place the first few first few tours that he was with the band until he got more comfortable on, on stage and, and playing in the band. But Bruce starts first of his 12 years with the band on Animal Eyes. And what's his first official day in the band? Does anybody I've, I've know? Always, actually, yeah, I've always thought it was really cool. It said that his first like official concert with the band was the recording of the MTV Animal Eyes Live on Censored. And then his last major concert was MTV Unplugged. So I always thought that was kind of kind of cool. Two bookends. Yeah, two bookends right there. I thought if we're going to talk about the tour, I thought this was the last until we get later on. This is the last Kiss tour for a while that had a really cool, unique stage production. You could see that they had some money to put into it. You had these cool ramps, and you had the cool, you know, dynasty-like entrance and them coming up from you know behind the drums. Before Detroit Rock City was starting, and then you had that uh, descent during Black Diamond that they were, uh, you know, robbing that the Bex Bolero playing the ending of Black Diamond again. So you, this is the last tour for a while where you had a really cool production going on. And um, I know I mentioned before that Kiss wasn't uh, a real visual band at this time, but they were trying to still remain uh, a concert act, and uh, I guess. I guess trying to put some type of theatricality into their show. They're not wearing makeup and costumes anymore and demons aren't spitting fire and, and blood or whatever. But, you know, there's cool things going on. There's that ramp that's coming down that they're running up and then there's Paul doing his trapeze thing and mm-hmm. there are cool there are cool parts of the show. This was the last tour for a while where they did that stuff. Yeah, and Eric Carr's drum solo really starts becoming a creature unto itself in Animal Eyes. I mean, it's it's building year on year from 1980, obviously, when he joined the band. But Bruce, um, you know, bless him for being the great talent that he is coming in. He does the uh, European tour, and then he finds himself in the band. But I think, number one, he doesn't, he doesn't threaten Paul and Gene's focus. He doesn't take the spotlight away from them. He's not doing any shredding that has Paul Stanley having to come out on stage and say, ladies and gentlemen, Vinnie Vincent, to try and get him to stop playing. He's not doing any of that. He's a total team player. He goes off to the side. He knows when to come in for his photographic opportunities uh, with the pit. But other than that, he's very safe. So... And he na- and he nails his lines every single night, so you're, you're guaranteed performance with Bruce because you just know you can count on him. Sick, vertical, like a tree. He's, he's, he's <laughs> Spruce. Yeah, and that, you know I don't think that's fair to Bruce to call him Spruce because I, I really feel he was given a script and say you need to do this. You need to, we need you to be this sort of person on stage for us. Paul's going to do the running around. The spotlight's going to be following him, and when it's not following him, it's going to be on Gene. So except for that, maybe three and a half minutes that it's on Eric. Well, and I mean, to mind you too, you know, when it comes to Bruce, I mean, he was first hired on to just you know fill in at the time, you know, and so uh, Andrea, I mean, you uh, you filled in like with Kiss Nation and stuff, but I'm sure you probably played with other bands. I mean, did you ever have that kind of feeling like, you know, I'm just a fill-in guy, and so I don't want to steal from the show, I'm just here for one night or anything, or have you... Uh, no, my personality always leads it to I'm here, yeah. 
So fucking look at me. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> okay. Andrew's a bad example there. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I, I think that I know, like, at least for myself, when um, I've had a, not musically, but even just um, some other stuff I've done, I've been the, the fill-in guy and stuff, and it's like, okay, I'm, I'm here, but I'm not, I'm just kind of, you know, hoping you guys out, and so, you know, I feel like that played a role, because, I mean, you know, I mean, you, you know, of course you hear the stories with, with Paul, and I think it was, like, in that comic book where he takes, like, Gene's face and, like, give me that and stuff, but... You know, I think with that, like that Animal Life show, it's excellent. He does his stuff, but then he kind of like, you know, he stepped off to the side to let him do the show. But he does a good job, though. A really good job. So what do you think about the selection of songs that they brought into the set for the tour? Well, I, th- I really wish they would have kept I've Had Enough into the set list on Eno. Um, it's just such a, it's such a killer song. I, I know they've got that unmasked away show this year for the Kiss Cruise. If there was to be a song I'd love to see them do, I would love to see them do I've Had Enough just because it's such a great song that I don't think got its, got its dues, if you will. Yeah, I've Had Enough um, is, a, is a great song, and it's definitely an underrated song, but this is the first tour where they brought in um, songs like Under the Gun, which I really don't think are all that good. But then you have Heavens on Fire, which I think is a solid track. And um, get all you can take. Another another great song, um, which didn't survive, think, did it? It did not last. No. Yeah, I think there are less but great the songs on Animalize than on Lick It Up. The songs definitely aren't as good. I mean, Under the Gun, I think fits the tempo. It's one of my favorite songs on the album. But Into the Fire, Under the Gun, Heavens on Fire, great selections. Who the hell thought of doing Burn Bitch Burn Live? I just I do not understand that. Gene, I gotta have a song. You know, I, it, it really why. it really strikes me. I gotta have a song. Well, I, it, it's probably Paul going, Gene. I'm not gonna sing all the fucking songs. What song do you want to sing? And Gene's uh, probably like, uh, uh, Ramsey. I, I mean, uh, Burn Bitch Burn. We'll do that one. I've, I've, <laughs> I've got this little ditty about putting my log in a fireplace. Oh, oh. <laughs> I cringed at 14 at that. So. <laughs> So, uh, so I guess after Animalize, we get into the the B. Arthur experience. Yeah. What the fuck happened, Gene? Where did you go? What what, what did you do Poison to Gene? Happened. Poison, Poison Motley Crue. If bands like that happen, that's what happened, and that's why we look the way we do. You want to know why Kiss looks the way they do on the Asylum tour? Pick up a, the first Poison album, look what the cat dragged in, and look how. Re- Ridiculous! They look on that album. Yeah, but they they didn't like exist. 86. That was eighty six. By the time no, they they had any Asylum national directing me, yeah, <laughs> Asylum came out in eighty five, and Paul's like, "Look at my gloves." I'm like, "What? Why? Why did you do that?" So we've we've entered difficult ground here because this is the album that got me into the band. So I was watching these videos. Wow. There's, um, a there's a difference between music and looking like that. I'm sorry. I thought I, back then the the me. 
thought that Paul looked cool. So, um, Man. but <laughs> they did that in Vegas. Paul does that in Vegas. My wife looks at me. She's like, "What the hell is he doing?" I go, "Oh no, it's the video. That's cool." <laughs> Your wife's like, "You ain't getting sex tonight for that." <laughs> So 1985, I guess you've got all these freaking bands. And I, again, we can blame L.A. because Dawkins looked like that. Motley Crue had decided to get rid of, the, rid of their whips and leather and looked like that. Wasp had changed as well. I mean, once they bring Johnny Rod in, they're totally, you know, changing their image. Rat, they've got all the freaking streamers and all that shit going on. So it seems to have been an infection that affected the music industry um, in 1985. But the music, Asylum, again, I, I see it as a, a, a sibling to Animalize. There's not that much difference stylistically in the music. So you get Tears Are Falling. I, I think you get more of an emphasis on the power ballad because Thrills in the Night had not been given the chance that it really deserved. So Thrills, um, sorry, Tears Are Falling, they really start pushing heavily and, you know, it's, I think, one of the first videos that I saw, along with Who Wants to Be Lonely. I'm like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool music. And uh, All Night. So those are your three representative songs from the album as they chose. Does it work? I think King of, I think King of the Mountain is one of the, such a great starting uh, song for the album. That drum beginning, uh, Eric Carr, outstanding and amazing. No, I I think that there there are good there are good songs on a on Silent with King of the Mountain and Who Wants to Be Lonely. Um, I think that it gets dismissed right away because people know what the band looked like visually on stage for that tour, and people just kind of a lot of Kiss fans just kind of roll their eyes and like, oh, you know, is Kiss just immersed in the eighties at that point. Um, it's, it's the most '80s look for the band, and it's, it's a very '80s sounding sounding album. And you know that's and you know and visually on stage with the flamboyant outfits, the great big Kiss logo behind them, everything is big and very you know and very current for the time. Though, um, Does this bother anybody else? Why is Eric Carr like not on this cover? Who's that guy? What's what, why? And a lot of people probably didn't even know who that guy was even at the time. He's only yeah. the drummer. Hey. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then this, the back, it's like, hey, this could be Miami Vice. Well, the half shirt's pretty cute. There, you gotta admit that. That's why I said Miami Vice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that ja that, that jacket's pure John Don Johnson. So, I mean, look, it. Look, look. Look at them here, and look at how much different they looked on the tour. Yeah, but open that up and uh, pull out the fo actual photographs of them on the inner sleeve. Oh, I don't know if I want to. Yeah, you know, it, it's certainly not uh, inspiring, shall I say. What the fuck? He's, he's wearing a robe. It's hot. Yeah, but he did, he did that in uh, 1976. He wore a robe. Yeah, but that was cool. This is some for some for some He's reason. Star child. Yeah. That, that that changes everything right there. I mean, look at that. Yeah, he's got a little bit too much Max Factor going on there. I thought they took off. <laughs> yeah, see, 
this makeup. So I guess we can say by 1985, Kiss had put the makeup back on. <laughs> Though it's pretty heavily caked on and lick it up air. I mean, it's pretty, yeah. uh, they didn't really take it off for a while. But if you get if you get past the image, and if you can erase Gene Simmons circa nineteen eighty five from your brain forever, um, musically, it's a pretty strong album to me. I mean, opinions are going to vary on that, but I think King of the Mountain they should have been opening up the frickin' set with that because it just would have made for a way better opening. It would have redefined the set in so many ways, Eric front and center with that freaking drum work is just insane. Um, I don't see them being able to do Who Wants to Be Lonely live. I don't think I would have wanted to hear Trial by Fire or Any Way You Slice It live. Uh, well, we did hear any- Radar for Love. Well, we did, we did get to hear Any Way You Slice It, but it got dropped. Love's a Deadly Weapon, yeah. I think, could have worked. Tears Are Falling, you know, I enjoyed that in Vegas, which was the first time I got to hear it live, if I recall Same. correctly. But it's the, it was such a short set list, though. I was listening to the December um, December 28th show, 1985, that Charlotte, North Carolina soundboard. It's on YouTube if Great you guys show. are looking for it. Yep. Excellent show, minus that uh, <laughs> the Love Garden rap on that one, too. Thanks, Paul. Um, but it was it was so quick. I mean, I'm looking at the set list, and... You know, this one, they, they don't have Lick It Up. They think it might have been, and this is from the Kiss of Life Forever. Great book, if you guys don't have it. But 12 songs. Uh, I mean, they all had solo spots, but it was it was such a quick, fast show. I mean, it was like a, just a little over an hour long. 12 songs, and that was it. And, uh, I mean, he did these three tracks, came off of, um, oh no, two tracks came off of the Asylum on this one. But Yeah, by then, by then you know, Kick of the Mountain's gone. So I don't remember if it if it returned after that, but I mean, look at the set. You're down to Detroit, Cold Gin, and Love Gun. So you're still four classic songs, and the rest of it is again, you know. It, like it up, they, they're wanting to be the prove that they're current and their songs now are current, and the the what we're doing is important, and they're very heavily disregarding their past more than ever at this point. But, but that, you want to bet that I bet Heavens on Fire was still on the radio at that time, too. So that's probably, not to say that that would be a bad song that they would drop, but there were probably still some of those tracks that were still on the radio at the time that you wanted to hear in concert. Oh, shit. And you were get, still getting a lot of traction for the band out of Heavens on Fire and Animalize. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. That's their biggest selling studio album of the 80s. Um, I don't think it's officially certified double platinum, but I think it's close. Um, have to check some updated sound scans on that. But that album gave them a, a lot of life. And, I mean, this show we're talking about, Charlotte, I mean, that's a 9,200 attendance as well with 133 grand gross, which was really good for that era. And that's a high point on that tour because so many of the other attendances, you know, they're down in the five 6,000 range. They they stagnated there between 83 and 87. So, you know, this is a standout show. Great that we got. What happened? What happened on this tour that was that was different from all the other '80s tours? Kiss finally returned to Madison Square Garden, December sixteenth, nineteen eighty-five. They finally returned back to the holy ground in in history. They hadn't played Madison Square Garden since the Dynasty tour in nineteen seventy-nine. So you had you had the hit "Heavens on Fire," and then you had the follow-up "Tears Are Falling." That was enough to solidify them to go back to Madison Square Garden. 
home. They probably really felt like we're back. We're back. We can do this without Ace. We can do this without Peter. And we can do this without the Mesa. Mm-hmm. What and, we're doing right now and these songs we're producing right now are, in their mind at the time, just as good. We're just as relevant as ever. We are back. Because even in, you know, I mean, I guess 79, they played back-to-back shows in the, in the Garden in 79. But, you know, you got to feel like, okay, this was always our goal was to play the Garden. We went down. But we've climbed the mountain again, and, you know, we can do it in the 70s. Here we are, you know, in, in the mid-80s now, and we're doing it. Well, what's interesting to note, too, is uh, Brendan Byrne Arena, which which is the Meadowlands, and then I don't know what it's called now. I think it's the IZOD Center, but I think it's closed. But they played both of those. They played the Meadowlands and Madison Square Garden, so that can't be discounted because they're really close to each other. I think they're under an hour um, from each other, I'm just pulling up the, the tour dates now. I want it because I believe they closed the tour at. Um, they closed it in Pittsburgh. Yeah. No, yeah. they closed it in Pittsburgh, which was a makeup date, and Meadowlands was the official end of the tour, uh, and right. they sold that out fourteen thousand six hundred ninety three, two hundred three thousand dollar gross. So you sold out the Meadowlands on March 29th, and then you go back. You know almost less than three months in there at New York City. And those are, are really close to each other. And those are so close that, you know, as a kid, I would pick either one of the shows to go to. So it really can't be discounted. So I know they played two shows at the Garden in 79, but there wasn't an arena in New Jersey in 79. So they they you're, they were back, and they were finally taken seriously again on in their homeland. And MTV was very... People forget MTV was was a staple at that point in time in the mid-80s. MTV was huge. And I can remember, even I was six, seven years old, but I can remember that Tears Are Falling and Motley Crue, Home Sweet Home, were always the number one and number two most requested videos every day. And, And Kiss was on MTV all the time with Tears Are Falling. And and that is really a central part of my personal history is, you know, December the 23rd, my birthday. I walked down to Kmart in Binghamton, bought Motley Crue's Theater of Pain and Kisses Asylum because Home Sweet Home and Tears Are Falling were on MTV all the time. That was me into the metal scene. I mean, I'd, I'd finally grown out of Duran Duran um, and figured out that Quiet Riot wasn't really legit after Condition Critical. Um, and had gotten into those two bands. So MTV plays a central point for a whole bunch of bands, not just Kiss at this time. Oh, no. I mean, think of it the, was, think of know. the importance of, of MTV to Twisted Sister, you know, for a similar sort of band in this period. And, uh, Julie was a silent the first Kiss album to come out on compact disc. Then I was the first CD my dad bought, um, Kiss related was that. I don't believe it was. I think, it, I think Animalizer, even Lick It Up had, was the first, uh, official one, but, I, I didn't have a CD player, so I had no, no, no real idea. I remember, I remember him having a CD, and I actually was able to get Bruce to sign it for him, and it was pretty cool, but Chris would just be there. Growing up with what's a C- CD cover. What's a CD? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like a big record, but smaller and shiny. <laughs> so As- Asylum visually is not a success. I guess if you look at the overall tour stats, they are continue treading water. Um, just keeping their head above water. Lonnie, next album. Next album, we're into Crazy Nights, and we're we're still we are 
we are really still chasing the trends now at this point because 1987 and bands like Bon Jovi are have emerged as the main players in the game at this point. Um, Bon Jovi is very popular. Motley Crue is very popular. Very top players in the game at this point. So, what? And, and Motley Crue is even kind of chasing trends even at this point with with their last two albums. Even they're not as as hard as they were um, as when they started out with "Shout Out the Devil" and "Too Fast for Love." But Kiss is going to go after these. Tr- go after what's popular still. So, Crazy Nights. Whole whole lot of production on Crazy Nights, um, songs on Crazy Nights. You can and you can pick and choose from them. Well, I've, I've always thought it was interesting. They had Ron Nevison, who uh, I believe he was like a long time was like one of Chicago's big producers. So I, I don't know what they were thinking. The keyboards, oh my goodness! I would love to hear. I think uh, I think you mentioned before, Julian. Um, like Paul says, he's there's like more make better mixes of the crazy nights before the all the production was added to it, it was much heavier. Well, and Paul St- Paul Stanley's demos from this album are far superior to the finished versions on the album. Obviously, they're demos, so they haven't been super neutered by what Ron was commanded to do. This album doesn't magically end up sounding the way it does and getting released in this in this format by accident he was given an instruction set that we want to sound like ozzy's ultimate sin or no, like this is what they wanted There's yeah no with, without a doubt or like hearts bad animals or whichever album it was that ron had produced he was brought in there for a particular reason paul stanley wanted to be john bon jovi in 1987 he wanted an album with every song could be hit like slippery when wet had been um and he wanted to be the front man yeah, front, you know, he wanted to be John Bon Jovi, the front man in front of the band with all these songs that, with me singing, they can they can be radio hits. And you know, you start with the lead single, "Crazy Crazy Nights." I mean, it's totally Paul Stanley fronting the band. I mean, and, and it's it's not anything a diss against Paul or anything like that. It's it's what what was popular at the time, and it's what you know. Was was really trending. I mean, with Vin, with what the fuck is this? Yeah, it's hot. yeah, yeah. What the fuck is it's this? Hot, hot, that's what it is. <laughs> that's like <laughs> this is all I have to say. But what is this? Um, and for those listening, those the, those listening on audio only, Andrew is pointing to uh, Paul's mankini, um, <laughs> which, uh, for want of a better description, is what is it? It's called a demographic shift attempt. That fails because instead of going for the fourteen-year-old prepubescent boys, um, they all of a sudden wanted to go for the fourteen-year-old prepubescent girls. Who's paying to see Bon Jovi? Exactly. So maybe showing a little bit of blue bikini. Going like, oh, crazy nights, cool. The new kiss album. Like, going, what the? 
You know, I, I remember going down to Music City in Binghamton to buy this album the day it came out. I'd been calling every week. Is a new Kiss album out yet? And because it was going to be the first new Kiss album that I got to hold in my hands, so I, I had my little shitty red Walkman ride my bicycle down to Music City, buy it. They've got it. Looking at the cover, I'm like, oh, freaking cool, Broken Mirror. I mean, I didn't know anything at that point about the band's history and the allusion to Paul's Iceman, you know, broken glass guitars. That didn't mean shit to me. Flip it over, I'm like. Okay, um, we're looking at a torso of Paul here. What the hell's going on with the underwear? Um, and and Jean's looking a little bit um, phallic here. Um, but, you know, that wasn't the biggest problem with the album for me. I get it home, I put it on, and it's shrieking. Paul is shrieking. He's singing in an area that feels uncomfortable to his range. And while he pulls it off for the most part, I will say that he fails on my way. Um, most of the songs on the album, I think, actually suck. Um, they are not good songs. Um, there there are a few standouts. I mean, When Your Walls Come Down, I like. Reason to Live, I freaking adore. I think that's a fantastic radio-friendly unit shifter. Sorry, Nirvana reference. Um you know, but Crazy Nights didn't do a thing for me. Bang Bang You, I actually cringed when I hear, I'm going to shoot you down with my love gun, baby. I mean, this is the 15-year-old me going, oh my God, what the hell is this? And then you see the videos, um, apart from Reason to Live, you know, there, there's not much that I can say positive about Crazy Nights other than it nearly destroyed me as a Kiss fan and made me, you know, just ride off the bound. I was so new at that point that it wouldn't have been anything to give up. I have to agree. I like. I like. To, I love. Um, I'll find hell to hold you. I actually think that's pretty, pretty good song. One of songs. When, when, when you, when you walls, um, good song. Yeah, bang, bang, you. Even as a uh, growing up and having, I remember writing Crazy Nights when I was like a junior in high school. I picked up the CD and, and some of the stuff. I, and I'm sorry for anybody who loves the drumming or the guitar part. But you know what? No, no, no. I don't. No, no, no. Not, yeah, they're not. writing the song. They're going. No, no, no. That can't work. No, no, no. Oh wait. Not only that, we're going to put it in the set list too. Yeah. Oh god. So if each of us have to pick one song from this album as a high point, what would it be? I'm I'm going to go hell or high water. I'll go fight hell to hold you. Fight hell to hold you. Crazy crazy nights because at least. People know that song. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, that, this is, I'm embarrassed like, by it. I mean, it was a hit in England, so. I mean, just, like, ah. the whole album's a turd sandwich, so I'm trying to pick the steamy douche out of the turd sandwich. I, uh, I, I will say, uh, when he did Crazy Nights, or Crazy Crazy Nights, on the 2010 tour, they did, because it was, it was tuned down, it sounded really good on that tour. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it has sounded better when they've done it in recent years now that it's been brought down into Paul's current vocal range. Back then, you know, and again, hopefully one day they'll put out the demo so that everyone can hear exactly what Paul talks about with the layering of the choruses. The, the choruses on the demo sound exactly like he's described them as being anthemic, um, the kind of the rally that you expect from a Kiss song. The whole character is completely different, but you know, put it out there. You know, kiss box that too. Yeah, why was Sword and Stone left off? Because I think that's another that's really a, great Paul demo from around this time too. Probably because it was too good for the album. 
<laughs> yeah, and Hide Your Heart. Both yeah, on. yeah, both of those were left off. You know, those are both really strong songs. Hide Your Heart obviously would have competed directly with uh, Reason to Live. And I don't know if that was even considered for the Kiss album, but Sword and Stone, that's a really cool song. And yeah. I had no idea until like a couple weeks ago there was a, there's a Paul Dean cover of the song Sword and Stone. I don't know if you guys have heard that. Oh, song. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't know it existed. And I was just sitting there calling. I was like, you guys had a, a song that I think could have been a pretty great single, and you guys just tossed it off to the side. Okay. <laughs> You guys aren't making sense to me at all. But I wonder if that's if that's a bit of Paul back then. You know, again, think about the Vinny publishing maybe being an issue. He's writing songs. He's demoing some really, you know, some good stuff. I mean, they they, they attribute Time Traveler on the box set to 1986. So it's kind of in that era, and I won't say that's a good song, but, you know, he's putting out publishing tapes for other acts to pick up. And, I mean, look what happens with with the next album, Hide Your Heart. Everyone on their dog records that song. So I think it, Paul Dean was Loverboy. Um, you know, so he picks up Sword and Stone. Bonfire picks up the song because, you know, Paul Stanley, as a songwriting credit, has a, a lot of cachet with your audience. You know, co written by Paul. Sounds really good, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Crazy uh, Nights Tour. What do we think? A- again, you've got, it's like Asylum on. Acid, I guess, with with the image. The great big kiss logo in the back, and it's not. Like Andrews had said it's not like the um, Amalized tour is the last real exciting stage show they had done for a while. It's a, it's a very to me, it's a very boring kiss stage as opposed to um, ones prior and, and ones that are, are still to come with Hot and Shade and Revenge. Um, it's not. The uh, what their stage wear, Paul the basketball jersey type of outfit is is just really weird at this point even. And I, I hadn't. Think, I think Bruce Kulick's quick silver radio after seat though. You gotta give. That's pretty fly looking. That's pretty cool looking. I don't know about that. Uh, you know what? Maybe <laughs> co- compared to Asylum, compared to Asylum, it's a lot better looking. You know, maybe I might have thought differently about uh, Crazy Nights and even Asylum if I lived through them in real time. But, like, looking back, I'm like, I'm, I get really angry about this because, okay, uh, this came out in 1987. Think about what was going on 10 years prior. You know, descending on the baskets, on the stage. That's that's just 10 years ago. Fast forward to this, and there there's, like, a, like a half semicircle of something, and Bruce Kulick is playing keyboards on stage, and granted, your reason to live, not a bad song at all, but you're looking at that, you're like, what happened to my band? Meanwhile, meanwhile Paul Stanley's wearing white spandex with a red basketball jersey, wearing playing a freaking dinky, what's it, the body glove guitar, yeah, while wearing gloves, I mean, while shrieking bang bang you, I mean, and then, and then just think about this too, Kiss goes over to England, and they're doing this this Monsters of Rock tour. They're opening up for Iron Maiden when they were back when they were you know in England back in 1980. Iron Maiden was opening up for them, so it's a huge shift for Kiss. And you know, granted they they had their success with Crazy Nights, but they had this, and then even the next album they had those two piece of shit singles. Let's put the X in sex and rock hard. I'm like, oh, we'll what? get into that. I'm like. What? 
I'm like, what's going on? Why? Why? Why are you doing this? Just stop. Yeah, so that's a good segue, right, Lonnie? And we'll go into, we'll go straight into that and talk about Paul wanting to be the front man and be John Bon Jovi with Crazy Nights. Well, look at Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits. The videos, he's not even playing the guitar in the videos. He is the front man. He is John Bon Jovi in those videos, leading the band, yeah. singing and dancing bon and being as fancy as he could possibly be in those in those videos. I mean, don't I, I don't know. I guess you say that Asylum's as 80s as it gets. I don't know. I think those two videos for Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits might top it all for what what was going on visually with the band at the well, time. I think Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits are as a shit as it gets um, along my personal road. I, by this time, I'm living in Singapore, and finding metal imports or albums in a timely manner was a real challenge. I finally find this thing. I'm, I'm like thrilled. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm living in Singapore. I fucking hate it here. Um, it's so different. Here's some Kiss, some new Kiss music. I'm, I'm going home. I'm putting this on my record player, and let's put the X in sex. Just I'm putting, I'm putting this on. Hey guys, come and listen. Guys, hey friends, all my cool. Listen, come and listen. This is new kiss. Put this on. What? Wait, wait. I'm just kidding. This is the wrong yeah, record. Yeah. <laughs> so you get this album. You get these freaking songs that you know. We, we try and be a positive podcast here, but I I'm struggling to think of anything positive to say about this uh, this album other than the runout groove. What do they do? What, like and then, the, I, and then not just those songs, but the production on the, the classic it. tracks. Yeah, what you did, the "I Love It Loud" and "Deuce" are just—it's just painful to listen to to me at this point. And well, you know, they tried to do what uh, Bogart and all them did to uh, Double Platinum in '78. They tried to kind of do it again, and it just didn't work this time. No, it it, it didn't work, and I think you know. God bless Eric Carr, but him doing Beth is just a is tragic. It's a travesty, and you know he did it well. He sang it wonderfully. He, he's got a great voice. I know he wanted to do a, a lead vocal, but wrong song to do. It, they should never, ever, ever have put that on an album. It's just so insulting to their history and to Peter. It was just like bitch slapping Peter. Well, and that was part of it too. I think at the time. As we well. deserved a couple bitch slaps. Whoa! <laughs> we needed you last week. <laughs> I, I'll say, and, and the, the cover for Smash is always, I don't know, it was one of the other scenes that my dad had when I was growing up as a kid, but those hands coming out of like the sand or whatnot always weirded me out. Yeah, like, I, I've been sitting here trying to figure out how to do the Paul hands and maybe. It's a. It, I want It's too Gary Glitter, leader of the gang, you know. <laughs> He's doing a shadow puppet or something. <laughs> yeah, my hands are just wait. Okay, I'm just <laughs> You know, apart apart from the hands, I, I'd say it's cool album art. It's certainly an improvement on Asylum. It's an improvement somewhat on, especially the back cover of uh, Crazy Nights. But it's a greatest hits package, and I guess if, if but you it sold well. It sold really well. It's their top-selling album of the 80s, officially double platinum certified. So, you know, two million suckers. And, well, I mean, it sold well. They, for the first, when we've been talking that um, 
all at this point, up until this point in the 80s, they had been distancing themselves from those 70s songs and really focusing on the current band. And they come out with a greatest hits package with Strutter and Deuce and um, Dr. Love and some other hits on there. And they have a lot of success with it. And we see that when they go back out on tour again and they start, well, maybe, you know, maybe some of these songs from the seventies weren't so bad and we can start playing these live again. And, you know, the greatest hits album sold well. Maybe, maybe we, maybe we can get away with playing some of these songs again when we go back out on tour. Yeah. It's, it's the start of a change. I think if you look at, you know, they obviously didn't tour for this album. Paul went out on his solo tour with, uh, Bob, um, Dan and St. James. That's right. Uh, Gary Corbett and Eric Singer on drums. And he only tortured small groups of people with a live version of Let's Put the Axe in Sex. Um, <laughs> but I think in, in that tour, you really see you know him reconnecting with his personal favorites. Oh, come with, on, love me. Yeah. So, you know, if, if nothing else, this is the genesis of the change, you know, back to swinging the balance of the live performances back to the 70s material away from the 80s i mean he's he's throwing i mean i stole your love i want you into his live set and hopefully i mean i think he reconnected with it and and that's when this happened well back to a bad talk about bad album covers that might not that bad oh i think it's kind of cool about. It's got shades on it, man. Well, I mean, do you like Points. this to be the album cover, maybe? Well, I have one problem. If you, if you think of Spinal Tap and Stonehenge, where you've got Kiss and the Sphinx. <laughs> okay, I never, you're right. You're right. Okay, so, the album. It's a big piece of shit. Just a giant, <laughs> just a demo. Just like, no production. It's just, this is like, like, getting through this album from start to finish, it's like running an Olympic marathon if you've just had, like, triple bypass surgery. You can't do it. It's impossible to do it. When the album came out, I didn't get it right away. I'm still 10, 11 years old. I don't have a lot of income to go buy an album the day it comes out. But uh, a buddy of mine had it. He goes, dude, the new Kiss album's out. I go, yeah, yeah, I know. And he goes, you gotta hear it. It's kick-ass. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, it is come on over and i was like no it's really not kick ass it's okay i mean even at 11 years old i knew eh, it's really not well if you listen to it you're like rise to it you're like oh yeah this is cool it kisses back listen to me trade you go all right cool gene he's he's kind of back listen hide your heart ah it's a pretty cool song and then, and then, after and then, that and then, it's like wait what would you like to see love? what's in my, my brain <laughs> loves a slap in the face goes down Forever, what silver spoon? Then you turn over cat like dreams. It's like, why, why had that happen? There was, I've never even listened to King of Hearts, I don't even know what that song is. I couldn't tell you if my life depended on it. The street gets worse, worse. keep going. First of all, that song (laughs) title is way too long. You can't, that's such, there's no way that that many syllables is going to create a hit song. And it messes messes up the formatting on my website. Thanks a lot, Gene. (laughs) And Tommy. <laughs> you love me to hate you. Okay, it's okay. And there's Julia's biggest gripe on the album. <laughs> no, no, that is my, that the one that Andrew just said is my biggest gripe on the album. That is, you love me to hate you, because I was listening to Joan Jett back at that time, and that song had already been released on Joan's album. 
I mean, I hate I, myself for loving you. Is it's just a direct rewrite of that freaking song, and it's nowhere so, near as good. Little Caesar, it's like there. If you listen to Eric Carr's demos that he had floating around at this time, I thought some of Eric Carr's demos were, were great. Some of the stuff that ended up on that Rockology CD. Hell yeah. Oh yeah. So, and I think they gave him the most piece of shit song on the album, Little Caesar. They set him Eric, up. Yeah, it's like song. So Eric, bad. Sing a song. We'll sing this piece of shit. You don't like it? You get none then. They to- I think they totally set him up. He'd been bitching. Uh, he wasn't, you know, happy. And he said, "I want to have a song. I want to have a song." So here's some songs I recorded. Somebody's waiting. I mean. Holy somebody's shit, somebody's awesome. hating could have given forever a run for the money, so you know they would never, ever, ever let him have it. No. You know, they, some... weren't, they weren't about to have the drummer have the big, sorry, they weren't about to have the, let the drummer have one of the bigger songs on the album again. Little Caesar <laughs> is the weakest, or Ain't Messing With You, or whatever the hell it was called as a demo. Ain't Messing With You! <laughs> is, ain't, ain't That Peculiar? Ain't That Peculiar, ain't that peculiar which became I... Ain't That Peculiar, so... And then I gotta say this real quick on that: How the crap did Kiss get away with not giving Marvin Gaye even a, a songwriting credit when he did a demo on the box set? Yeah, the lyrics are, to- are totally, they're completely rip off. And, and I mean, it's I hope Marvin Gaye's family doesn't come after uh, Kiss now for that. I mean, see what they've been doing on the news, but yeah, Eric got ripped off on on the Little Caesar aspect because somebody's waiting is killer, amazing. You know, so much of the stuff that came out on Rockology, and also, and I think the the demo came out on Unfinished Business, mm-hmm. are of extraordinarily good quality for Eric. I think he had really hit a home run with a lot of that material, and it's just a shame that it never got out um, to the sort of audience that he would have had back in 1989, 90, than he had, you know... After the fact, you know, he's he's gone, so at least we have the music, but it didn't get the reception in 1999 when Rockology came out. You know, half the people who would have cared no longer care, so it, it's just a real shame that Little Caesar is his vocal, his first and last proper vocal on a Kiss album, and then then the album closes with... <laughs> what, maybe, maybe the worst Kiss song of all time. No, it's, it's up there with No, No, No. <laughs> sucks so bad, but in in that whole side of that album sucks. The whole album side. But going going back to trends, it was a thing. It was a trend at the time because CDs were out and CDs were popular, and you could fit a certain amount of minutes onto a CD, and a lot of bands were filling that up as mo- as much as they could with as many songs as they could with going for quantity. Over quality at the time. Well, if we can put up to seventy-six minutes worth of material on a CD, well, we should do it because you know why only put ten songs when we can put up to sixteen songs on a CD on on and make it one disc, one CD for for, for that amount of time. And you you really got a whole lot of quality was measured over quant. I mean, quantity was measured much more heavily over quality. Yeah, and unless that's why you end up with songs like King of Hearts and Boomerang and <laughs> How many Boom. minutes we got left? Okay, Eric, you can sing a song now. We got enough minutes left. Yeah, and we'll make it second to last one. People are really burned out on this thing, so they don't even get that far on the CD. <laughs> they can't even make it. You can it. tell CDs were out too because what? 
the first three songs on there are really good. So you hit play, bam, 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 the first three songs are really good. And then it just drops. You're walking off a cliff off that album. I mean, yep. I remember picking, this was my first CD, um, my first Kiss CD. And rise to it. I'm like, okay, I like the funky guitar. I mean, Cinderella's had long cold winter been out already. So bad seamstress, you know, whatever that that first song is. I can't remember, uh, you know, betrayed. It's okay. It's, you know, got a bit of attitude. You know, it's got something then hide your heart, you know, great song. Um, and then prisoner of love. Yeah, I'm like, we're getting a little dodgy. And then you get punched in the guts with read my body. I mean, I did not get it. I thought Paul Stanley trying to be the Beastie Boys did not work. Um, or trying to be Blondie or whatever crossover act had done some successful pseudo-rapping. I mean, uh, Def Leppard had done it on Hysteria. You know, it's just, it's a shit sandwich, Read My Body. And, you know, that is the worst song in the Kiss catalog by far for me. Um, kind of like Dreams. That, that, the drums on Read My Body... The drums on Read My Body sound like, you know, they stole them from, like, Prince or Millie Vanilli. Well, so, so much of the drums on this album are drum machine. It's not Eric Carr. It is, it's samples. It's it's fake. It's not real. It's unfinished. It's not high-quality studio recordings. It's piecemeal stuff that's been patched together, and then you end up with 65 minutes of music that you jam onto vinyl, completely destroying all the sonic quality that you can actually press physically into that medium, and it it just is garbage. And here, if you were going to make a list of the of your ten least favorite or ten worst Kiss songs, you could you would have multiple multiple off of this album. Eight of them come off of this album. <laughs> but it's not all bad, you know. Forever. No, I mean here forever. Spawn them their biggest hit of the decade. I guess it was ninety one was really hit, but biggest hit in, in since since I was made for loving you. Biggest hit since I was made for loving you. And hot in the shade remains gold certified. So what did it do for them? Saw it all. Did not do a thing. That shit sandwich. It did. It did not translate into sales. It did not really translate into a tremendously more successful tour, though. The Hot in the Shade tour is the biggest tour the band embarks on in that decade. Well, we're now into the next decade because they delayed going out on the road until early 1990. Why they do that? Because they waited for forever to become a hit. Well, yeah, you, you keep releasing singles. They could go out on tour. Yeah, you keep releasing singles until one sticks because Rise Your Heart, unfortunately, was a really dumb choice of a single. Um, Wait, what? Say that single name? Yeah, you, you, uh, you said Oh, Rise, Rise Your Heart, Rise to yeah. It. Yeah, there we go. And it was actually stage. It was it was actually hide your heart. Hide your heart was yeah. Hide your heart was the first okay. one, and it stiffed at sixty six. Um, rise to it did even worse, and then they get a hit with uh, forever. <laughs> forever. I, I will say though, um, if anybody who's curious, they've got. I don't think I've seen it. You probably have. all of us here at least. Um, they've got that show they did at the Stone Pony. It was like a little club. Uh, right before the tour started, and you get a good good example of Rice doing a Betrayed live, which um, Betrayed you don't see too much on. But um, the tour, though, I mean, the set list that they went for the tour, though, I thought was a very good mix of having the classic Kiss songs along with some of the new stuff. 
I never the long. That was I think it was, was that the longest set list too that they ever done, or at the time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, at the time. And, and, and that, if, like, if nothing else, that is the high point of the Hot in the Shade era, is the tour and the set. Coming, starting off with I Stole Your Love. If I, I mean, I, I didn't go to Hot in the Shade and it came to town. My older brother was, was his high school graduation that night, so I did not see the Hot in the Shade tour. A buddy of mine, though, he his graduation was that night, too. They came, like, First week of May, he skipped his high school graduation and went to the hot and shade tour to came through town. <laughs> he had his priorities done. in line. And that's what I would have done. <laughs> so, but I mean, you talk about um, smashes with re um, introducing the the classics back to the public. Well, hot and shade tour, they really introduced the classics back into the set list. You know what a kick in the pants to start off with I Stole Your Love. I mean, that's right in the deuce. So badass. I Stole Your Love straight in the deuce. I mean, it doesn't get much more classic kiss than that to start off a show. And then you go into Heaven's on Fire so you kind of bring them up to speed a little bit with what's current with the band, too. Somewhat. I mean, I guess Heaven's on Fire was six years old at that point, but just to kill a cellist. And then he did Black Diamond at the beginning of the of the show, really. It was like, you know, the fifth, fifth or sixth song for the cellist. Yeah, it, 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 uh, it's, it's a completely the- unbelievable cellist in terms of how it actually marries the old with the current. Mm-hmm. What is the 80s? Um, I mean, all the stuff that came back into the set, Come On and Love Me, God of Thunder. I mean, you, ha- you also have them finally doing a good stage show. I mean, Leon... And the lasers, um, their costumes or what what they were wearing, you know, Paul it with his... cool for the first time. Yeah, Paul, Paul Stanley with the Les Paul was pretty freaking cool because he, obviously he's not known as a Les Paul player. Um, but he looked cool. Gene finally looks a bit comfortable in his skin. Eric's drum solo is incredible. It's tied in with the lasers. His synths have, have come into full fruition. It's a fully envisaged, you know, drum symphony for what, nine minutes. So, you know, fantastic. And Bruce is right at home and awesome. Yeah. Bruce looked more comfortable than ever in the the footage you see from that tour. And, you know, the band, the band finally looks like they're starting to feel comfortable in their own skin, not only with being out of the makeup, but embracing their past and playing songs of, of, of current day as well. Um, it was, it's really one of the best, greatest hits type of set lists that you that they could have possibly drum up for 1990. Um, 1990 was a great year for music because not only did you have Kiss touring behind Hot in the Shade that came out the year prior, but you had Dr. Feelgood, you had Heartbreak Station, you finally had emphasis on real blues driven rock instead of you know hey poison fuck me suck me you had you finally had a focus on actual music and i think kiss finally embraced that where they went you know what not only can we try to remain current with you know forever and and uh, rise to it but we could finally embrace the past and you have this show which was just freaking awesome and i wasn't there i was five years old but watching the video and Leon explodes apart and then the Kiss logo comes up as they're playing I Want You, it's like, holy crap, that is the coolest thing to see. Mm-hmm. And so, I missed that tour. I came back to America in August 90 and 
it had already passed by the East Coast. So I never got to see it. I felt I got to really experience Hot in the Shade in Vegas with the laser show. I finally felt after seeing those those two fantastic pro shots from Detroit early on in the tour and later on, you know, you really get to feel what a great production it was. You know, Kiss had a tour production even though they weren't heavily costumed. It was the music. Now, did you know that they had a whole water system running through the stage too? A whole water and drainage system running through that stage. So if you look, you'll see just what there's like a pipe just like emptying out water just on that stage. Nope, did not. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a fact. I, uh, a water and piping system running through that stage. What was its I, purpose other than emptying yeah. water? Did it have like did it have like green coloring in it too? Was it like, um, I don't know if it was all, if it was green colored or if it was some green light on it, but they did have a whole actual water pumping system running through that stage. Maybe it was to cool the dry ice or the pyro, but I know for sure if you watch some of the angles on Detroit, you could see the water just draining mm-hmm. on that stage. You know. And one thing that happened, too, since the last time Kiss had done a proper tour with Crazy Nights in between Crazy Nights and Hot in the Shade is that one of the biggest albums of that era had come out and really changed the face of rock. And that was Appetite for Destruction coming out and seeing the popularity of Guns N' Roses get away from the hair metal scene and just be a straight blues-driven, in-your-face ballsy rock band and kiss saw what was happening with that and maybe you know and we'll live in in uncertain terms following that trend that hey we can get away from all this horrible look that we've been going through the last few tours and kind of just be ourselves with with what's happening with with music now and and, and and that was a major factor in in the change of of how the band looked visually from Crazy Nice Tour into the Hot and Shade Tour was was Appetite having the success that it did. Yeah, and, and that had an effect on everyone. Nineteen eighty nine, exactly. Motley Crue and Doctor Feelgood, obviously we've mentioned, they changed their look. Wasp, you know, they came out with uh, the Headless, Headless Children. They totally changed their look similarly, you know. So every single act, a Dawkin, um, back for the attack, changed their look. You know, gone was their 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 glam phase of under lock and key gone. So you know, ev- everyone went back to basically kind of like how they looked in 1984. I guess Rat as well also dropped all their their stuff for Detonator. So you know, th- this era really, it, you know, they're right in line with all the other bands saying, "Well, we don't need all that shit anymore." You know, let's let's focus on the music, and you get one hell of a long set. Um, best talk. Talk- I wish I was old enough. I mean, when they came to D.C., I was just coming up on a year old, though. Not that you guys feel old or anything. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, uh, I, I agree. I just, uh, you know, if you guys don't have Kissology Volume 2, which you guys should go down and get it, that Detroit show that they have is excellent. Um, excellent representation of this tour and, and performance. Minus the fact that they didn't, they, they cut out rides to it and, and I wish they would have thrown that in there, but I think there was some uh, publishing issues with that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Bob, Bob Halligan, that's, I believe. That's like the 889th reason why I got pissed off at Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> you know what really grinds my gears? <laughs> you know what really grinds my gears? <laughs> <laughs>
But the other Detroit shows uh, available on video as well, Pro Shop. So, yeah, you know, bootleg. Yeah, so bootleg. You you might get stoned if you talk about it. So yeah, you go to uh, YouTube and you can probably see it. And I'm, I'm not even going to check. So you know, you've got some good videos from this tour. Um, any others that jump out? Um, I'm looking at my freaking website have, and I don't have, I have it all noted yet. There's actually a really good one that's out there that's not widely available. Uh, Fort Worth, Texas, 1990. It's actually really good. You know, and getting just look real quick that Kiss toured forever on this tour, and they went back to a really grassroots tour where they played places they hadn't played in a long time. There are so many Hello? shows. There are so, so many shows in the Midwest that they hit, places that they hit. Springfield, Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, Carbondale, Illinois, um, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Play, I mean, Cape Girardeau, Missouri is like a college, college town two hours south of St. Louis where southeast Missouri State is. And it's it's just a small little arena that they played in. And I, I, I really, you know, it's really Kiss getting back to their roots, not only with their set list, but going places that other bands wouldn't always go to. And yeah. well, I'm looking at the Kiss of Life Forever. They, uh, between July 10th and July 13th, they had four concerts in four different locations just in Virginia alone. And, like, you don't, you don't see stuff like that, you know, with a lot of the previous tours. So, they, uh, yeah, they they, you don't see bears. stuff like that because most people in Virginia, they're all family. So they, they didn't oh even know. That's, 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 uh, that's, you know, that's, that's where they get confused with Ancestry.com and Match.com. And they're just suspended in Virginia. <laughs> Why do I get the feeling I'm going to be doing some more editing this evening? <laughs> Come on, just leave it in there. <laughs> Oh, I'll, I'm happy to leave it all, and you know, it, it's uh, like like we say, we we just chat, and uh, where it goes, who knows? Listen, I just like to have a good time. I don't mean anything by what I say. I just want to have some laughs and talk about Kiss. I'm not. I don't hate anybody. I'll to that. You know, I just want to have some laughs. It's you know, I'll make fun of myself just as much as I'll make fun of anybody else. You know, th so. this when we're talking about it, Kiss is a band of full grown men who wear spandex. Put on makeup and basically sing about having a good time. So and, and they have fun doing it. For the most, yeah. but, but for the most part, they <laughs> and uh, for, so much so for the for the things too, like you said, Julian, they have fun doing what they do. I think um, I think you could speak in the hall and the shade throw and kind of go to back to that. The videos you see them, they look like they were having fun. Minus whatever kind of the drama that was kind of going on between Eric and Paul on the tour, on the concert, they looked like they were just having fun. And I think that's what um, I think helped kind of re-energize re the band at that time, was they were having fun. Yeah, and, you know, for the third tour in a row, they they play Madison Square Garden, and that show, November the 9th, ends up being Eric Carr's, you know, final show, live uh, live show with the band, which... Is a somewhat melancholy note, obviously, even all these years on. So, and they played it almost to capacity that night too. I mean, they're they're again feeling like we're doing this without the makeup, without Ace, without Peter. And then they go and ruin it all in 1992. But that's a whole. Oh, yeah. that, that real quick, the Hot in the Shade tour. They had a they had Slaughter with them. Do you think there Slaster? was any? 
Slafter. Slafter. Just like a Pokemon. <laughs> but, um. <laughs> but, Slafter. <laughs> but do you think there was, like, any, um. I don't know. I always kind of wanted. I, I guess maybe we get Mark Slaughter one day on the show. That had to have been, like, awkward having kids, but you've got Slaughter, which used to be the invasion, if you will, with Vinnie Vincent. With kids, I just always wonder if there was ever like awkwardness at all. If they were like, no, they were probably like, hey, if they, fuck if that they guy. Like, yeah, it's a big middle finger to Penny at the time. Yeah, yeah, like, I, you, you know, ab- absolutely. I mean, Slaughter was, you know, a band up on a band on the up. You know, was on the rise. They were big. Yeah, they they were a half decent band as well. So I mean, they weren't playing shit like "Rise Your Heart." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Now uh, someone's going to do a mashup now. <laughs> All right, so where do we leave this? You know, the, those are the albums of the '80s. Lick it up, animalize, asylum, um, smashes, and hot in the shade. I think it's best to say you could seriously take this for the kids box set. Maybe if there's a, there's a gym or two of, of a Gene Song guitar song there, and you could be happy with that CD for your 80s best of. I completely agree. I completely agree. The last I got to sit through the street, giveth, taketh, the love me to hate your what? I, the less I got to sit through that, better. <laughs> well, it was it was my kiss growing up in the 80s, and I was during the 80s. I was I was happy. I was into the band as they were. And granted, album after album, maybe I wasn't as happy with what they were putting out, but I was, I was still a fan. I still, you know, like them, and especially come, come hot in the shade with Hydra Heart and seeing them on MTV and seeing, you know, crazy nice videos on MTV. They, they were my band in the eighties, um, and it's, it's the kiss that I knew growing up with Bruce and Eric Carr. Um, that's okay. We, we won't hold it against you. Thank you. And as much as I'm sitting here bashing it now, it was it was important to me at the time. And um, even like I said, when Hot and Shake came out, I wasn't real impressed with it. But they were my band, and I and I would defend them. That you know they're they're still a great band. I don't I don't I don't care what anybody was saying. And it was not cool to be ten years old and liking Hot in the Shade in 1990. <laughs> It, it, it was not. It's not cool yes. to be 35 and liking Hot in the well, Shade no, in 2015 exactly. either. Yeah. So, <laughs> so nothing's changed. Still get grief over it. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't cool to be 29 and have this. You can Hot. find this in my apartment. What, this is like female <laughs> repellent. <laughs> you know, you, you can't you take you can't. one look at your apartment and they go run away screaming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you keep some things hidden away, skeletons in the closet, and, and that record, uh, Andrew, I might just hide it for quite a while. Yeah, it's in my Kisteria road case. That's another show. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about those. Well, at least I'm not as guilty as you. I mean, right by me right now is that. So, you know, I'm not looking at Paul's mankini. I wasn't. I just kind of was like, "That's what Andrew I was thinking." Can't I'm stop like, looking at it. it, it I'm no. like, "What the fuck?" I'm like, "I'm insulted." As a fan, I look at that. I'm like, "Why?" It's like a car wreck. You can't stop looking at it. You're like, "I want to stop, but I can't because look, it's a, you can't." Well, in 1976, Paul sings "I Want You." In 1987, he wants something else. So, you know, we're kind of we're kind of rejected at that point as uh, as the males. But I think, I think somebody said it before, but. 
you know, I think Kiss, you know, looking back at the eighty collectively, they um they 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 did what they thought was best and, and they thought was cool at the time. Um and, you know, looking back now they're like, Oh holy smokes. I mean I'll be honest, I saw for the first time one of those Fast and the Furious movies the other day. I never seen them and they had the clothing style that the only two thousands and I was like, Holy crap, did I wear that stuff in the early two thousands? So you know, looking back now, I don't think anybody can look back and go, hmm, probably wouldn't want to do that one again. But yeah, they it, had, but there are awesome gyms out there. Um, there's definitely awesome some takeaways from the '80s era, and I think that's at least they, they at least they have that. That there were awesome takeaways from the '80s. They era. were trying to, they were trying to still be a recording band back then. They were still trying to put out new music because obviously, Kiss wasn't a product-driven band at the time. They were putting out toilet paper or duckies or hello kitty at the time so there was still a drive to be uh a band to try to have that hit try to have that one hit like what if they had a big hit like home sweet home you know yeah they had tears were falling but you put the two and two together more people know home sweet home than tears (laughs) were falling yeah so but still you have this this time period that kiss kind of wants to erase it kind of gets jumbled through they skim over it in history almost every documentary they kind of just gloss over it but um you know what they survived and without the 80s kiss probably we wouldn't without these these albums as shitty as some of them are kiss didn't do those albums we four of us wouldn't be here today yeah and i think probably the one of the big messages i get out of this even if it's a little bit revisionist, is they didn't surrender. They didn't quit. They could have walked away and, and gone on a hiatus and say, you know, Gene's going to do his acting, Paul's going to do a solo thing, and, you know, whatever. Paul is all right. Gene's all right. Yeah. Eric seems a little weird. Who we got playing guitar now? <laughs> so, so they didn't quit. They, they, they persevered. And I think this all, you know, takes you into what ultimately becomes the reunion. Uh, as they, you know, re-embrace their roots. And, you know, there, there's some great 80s songs. There's stuff I still love to listen to. There's obviously stuff that doesn't resonate anymore. There's stuff that never resonated. So it 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 kept the band alive. And obviously the focus is on Paul in this period. You know, he's the one who's really keeping the band together. He's the one who's driving forward. Gene's off, you know, producing, acting. Paul isn't. Paul's the, you know, the leader of the gang. Lonnie, wrap us up. Well, it was fun to do an 80s show. Um, like I said, it's an important period to me. It doesn't get a lot of respect from fans, but it's an essential period of the band. Um, it was my topic, and I appreciate you guys um, going along with it and, and talking 80s kiss, and I hope that everyone listening enjoyed as well. So everyone, go get your copy of Hot in the Shade and put it on now. Just kidding. Side two. Start with side two. And then go back to side two. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Alex, Lonnie, Andrew, thank you very much. This is uh, the Kiss FAQ podcast. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next time. Yeah.